Well, as many of you, I'm sure, have either read or seen on the news at about 6.30 local time Saturday morning in Israel, the Palestinian group Hamas launched a surprise attack from Gaza. This attack happened during the Jewish holy day, Simchat Torah, which is the seventh day of the Jewish festival of Sukkot, or the festival of booths. And this attack included incursions across the border in addition to the launching of thousands of rockets into the nation of Israel. And at this time, there are hundreds of deaths on both sides, in addition to many more casualties. And our prayers are with all of those in the region as we pray for a cessation of violence. And I bring that up for two reasons. The first is because we need to be praying as a community of faith for those around the world. But, but two, I, I had already planned on opening this sermon by talking about some tensions there in the region and then violence erupted yesterday. Tensions around land claims there have been going on for, for generations. And they manifest themselves in myriad ways. Some, like the incredible violence that we are seeing now. But in some other less overt ways as well. In the last couple of decades, Palestinian and Israeli farmers and vinters have been working to produce indigenous wine varieties. They're seeking to recreate wines that would have historically been available in this region hundreds of years ago, potentially you know, making wines similar to what might have been available in the time of Jesus or maybe even in the time of David. And these efforts are in part related to these tensions over whose land is whose. They're related to both groups' desire to establish that they have historical claims on the land. But there is also significance within the culinary world to these groups developing these wines. Terroir is a word that's used to describe the connection of food to the land. Food anthropologist Amy Trubick calls terroir the, the taste of the place. It describes that idiosyncratic combination of soil, climate, culture, and history that gives food of a specific region its particularity. Times Square Pizza on Oakland Park Boulevard is delicious, but it's still not like New York pizza in New York. Am I right? There is something about a place and the food where it comes from. Food is rooted in place. And in the case of this wine, it would be those specific flavors produced by the vineyards in the land of Israel and Palestine. Our story in Scripture this morning is for the third time in the last two chapters set in a vineyard. And so I want to invite you to open up the Bibles that you've brought with you from home, your pew Bibles or your mobile devices, to Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to pick up right where we left off 
last week. We're going to pick up at verse 33. And, and remember, Jesus here is teaching in the temple. Just the day before, Jesus and his disciples entered into Jerusalem. They're coming up on the holiday of Passover. And so here we are with Jesus telling another story or parable to the chief priests and leaders of the temple. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and and get his inheritance. And so they seized him. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Well, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruit of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our story this morning and in the stories leading up to it, Jesus not so subtly hits the leaders of the temple right over the head. And we're going to make our way through this story this morning backwards, looking at these three peculiar moments that we find. So beginning at the end first, you know, at the open I mentioned that this week's attacks in Israel occurred at at the end of Sukkot, specifically on the final day, or Simchat Torah. And there's a connection between our scripture for this morning and that Jewish holy day. You see, here in our text, Jesus quotes this scripture, and he says, have you never read in the scriptures? And then he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. This scripture here that Jesus quotes comes from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is a part of a Jewish liturgy called the Hallel. It's a liturgy that's 
used on a number of the high holy days, including Simchat Torah, including Hanukkah, others, and it's said during the Passover Seder. Now, the Passover is approaching. The Jewish leaders are preparing for this. Friends, these Jewish leaders were very familiar with this liturgy and this text. Liturgy, this work of the people, this thing that we do in worship, it becomes a part of us. Perhaps today you noticed when we didn't sing the Gloria Patri after the assurance of pardon. Perhaps today you weren't sure what we didn't do, but you knew we didn't do something. Something just didn't feel right. Liturgy, it, it, it becomes a deep part of us. And so it, it's an absurd idea that, that these leaders wouldn't have been familiar with it. Jesus' comments here are dripping with sarcasm. But the original text, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In its original context, it refers to the nation of Israel that God is restoring. And here, Jesus takes it and reinterprets it. Saying that he has become the cornerstone. Jesus gets their attention by taking this well-known scripture and turning it on its head. And isn't this how God so often works in our own lives? God takes the very familiar and turns it on its head. Friends, this morning I want you to consider how has God been trying to get your attention? This week, I want you to pay attention to how God is seeking to reach you. Because we do believe that God is speaking to us even now. The story just previous to this, this, this parable, it, it ends with this second sort of peculiar moment. The farmers, they see the sun coming and they have this idea. They say, well, this is the heir. Let us kill him and get his inheritance. In what backwards place is that how it ever works? In what place might you kill the son and get the inheritance? You know, there are some commentators that point out that perhaps if they killed the son and the landowner dies, that these farmers might inherit the vineyard by squatter rights. That feels like a stretch to me. These farmers, rather than submit to the landowner, rather than submit to the son's authority, they disregard him, they kill him. but then don't we do the same as the body of Christ? I think many of us Christians, we understand at an intellectual level that that God seeks to give us grace, abundant grace, if we will submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And yet we spend so much time making excuses why we don't submit certain parts of our lives. We, We hope to not submit to the lordship of Jesus 
We wish to be the lords of our own lives and still inherit the kingdom of God, but that's not how this peculiar kingdom works. In effect, we disregard the Son. We disregard Jesus. Friends, we don't get to kill the Son and inherit the kingdom. That's not how this works. When the story be- begins, we read about this landowner who, who purchases this property and invests. He plants a vineyard, he puts a fence around it, digs a wine press, and builds a watchtower with an eye towards producing fruit, specifically grapes, and wants a harvest. And so he sends servants to collect the harvest who are beaten, killed, and stoned. And here's where the third peculiar thing happens. How does the owner respond? The owner sends more servants. Who does that? Why would the landowner do this? It's you know, I think it's easy to quickly move past this fact. For, for those of us who grow up in the church, maybe we're even familiar with this parable and, and we've read it so many times that, that we just sort of read over these absurd details. Why on earth would the landowner willingly send more of his servants? I think what would have been helpful and what Jesus doesn't say, but we might as well fill in at the beginning of this story, is... The kingdom of God is like this. The owner sends servants who are beaten and killed, sends more who are killed, than sends his son who's also killed. This isn't how I would choose to run a business. It's not how you would choose to run a business, I would imagine. But it is how God has chosen to manage the kingdom of God. By continually seeking to extend grace in spite of the fact that we fail to get it right. We are, and and, and I hope that, I hope that I'm not breaking bad news to you here this morning, but we are, all of us, sinful people, right? Right? Imperfect people? In 2016, I received a phone call uh, from a church member who wanted to know if I thought the church would be willing to host another Alcoholics Anonymous group. And I responded to this church member by saying, you know, I, I think that could be a great thing. Um, but I think I'd like to go to a meeting in order to be able to be an advocate for you. You see, I really don't know what happens at an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Up to that point, my, all of my knowledge about Alcoholics Anonymous was informed by television. Right? And, and so on a Monday night, I, I went to this meeting. It was being held over at the Lutheran Church over on 3rd Avenue. It's now an upscale restaurant and club. <laughs> Sit with that for a moment. 
So I went to this meeting. And at the conclusion, I I got in my car and, and driving home, I called one of my friends from seminary who's in ministry out in the Pacific Northwest and I told him, I said, I just left the most incredible space. I just sat with a group of people who were willing to confess and admit their brokenness to one another, who were willing to sit and be vulnerable with one another. And it was not a place of shame, but it was rather, it was a place of hope that in their brokenness, they saw hope in one another's eyes and a way out. I said, not only do we need to have this meeting take place at First Press Fort Lauderdale, but we need whatever that is to be at First Pres Fort Lauderdale. Because in the meeting was this willingness to surrender, to say that I don't have it all figured out, that I am not the Lord of my own life. And friends, that is the base sin that we find ourselves in. It's the sin of the tenants who want control of everything. It's the sin of these temple leaders who want to control everything. We wish to be lords of our own lives. We fail to trust that God's got it. As we spoke about just a little bit ago, as as Bob Cash shared with us, we are in this season of stewardship. And I think that sometimes that can be an uncomfortable topic of conversation. And so I'm always in favor of just naming that. But giving, giving is a spiritual discipline. Because giving is a discipline that helps us to foster trust. You know, Scripture is clear that generosity is the key to breaking the chains of greed and jealousy. The discipline of giving, it means letting go of control of our stuff, relinquishing our perceived ownership of it. Now let me say this, if you're visiting with us today, if this is your first time here in church, or your first time in a church in a long, long time, hear me say this, I don't care if you give to the church. That's not what I'm advocating for here. What I'm advocating for is a discipline of generosity, to give away your stuff. Give it away to another charitable organization. Give it away anonymously with no regard for any recognition you might receive. If you are a member, I am advocating that some amount of your giving does go to the church. Because in membership, we have put our arms around each other and said, we're in this together. We believe that God is doing something here at First Presbyterian Church of Fort Lauderdale. We believe that God is investing in the vineyard here and wants a return. And I am excited to see what that return is here. What is the fruit that God is seeking to grow here at First Pres? What is that specific terroir that God wants out of us? What is God going to do with what God has given us? 
And so we invite you to fill out an estimate of giving, not only as a means of communicating, but as a spiritual exercise. When we plan to give, it means intentionality. It means not giving from the leftovers, but rather giving from the top. Friends, a posture of giving, of generosity, it opens us up that we might receive. And that is peculiar. But in a peculiar kingdom aren't peculiar ways of living to be expected. Friends in giving, may your eyes be opened to the goodness of God's grace and the peculiar kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.